Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. We uh, spent the last several weeks uh, talking about the introduction to the book of Hebrews, and then uh, we finally finished up with chapter 1 last Wednesday evening. And uh, Paul is going to, uh, Paul, I say to uh, Paul, I guess uh, for those of you that may not have been with us, the book of Hebrews uh, is the only New Testament book we have that does not identify the author. Um, there's uh, speculation by a lot of different people in theological circles and so forth as to who would be the writer and, and, um, and people, different people have different ideas. Uh, I personally believe that it was Paul. Uh, we have reason to believe, not only historically, but from what Paul wrote to the Galatians, that he attached the letter of the Hebrews to the Hebrews uh, to the book of Galatians. What we know of is the book or the letter to the Galatians. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, I think it's about verse 13, he said, you see what a large letter I've written with my own hand. Well, six chapters to the book of, in the book of Galatians is not a large letter. It's not the largest one that he wrote. It's not as big as the Romans. It's not as big as what he wrote to the Corinthians. So there must be something, some explanation for why he said what he did. Uh, our earliest historical evidence, uh, the earliest uh, uh, compilation of the letters, the New Testament letters of the Bible, have Galatians and Hebrews attached to one another. And, uh, and as such, it would make sense if Paul was the author, since he was not a, an apostle to the Jews, but rather an apostle to the Gentiles. And everywhere that he went around Jerusalem, it created a problem. It would make sense why he would not attach his name to the letter, because he knew very well that, uh, that the Jews would take this letter and take it back to Jerusalem. And that seemed to have been his intent. That was the problem with uh, the Galatians. The reason that he wrote the letter to the Galatians is because the Jews, uh, religious leaders from uh, Jerusalem, had come to the region of Galatia and had torn up or tried to tear up the churches with, with uh, their doctrine about the law of Moses and so forth. So uh, it would make sense, uh, in, in, at least from one perspective, for, uh, for Paul to be the author. And uh, there are many things in, uh, in the book of Hebrews that identify Paul's revelation. Although it's interesting to note that Paul does not start off saying, let me tell you what I've seen. He could have. He could have said, you bunch of backslidden buzzards are going to hell. Not only have you refused the truth, the revelation that I've preached, but you've tried to tear up the churches. God is going to get you. There's any number of ways he could have started this letter. But he starts off by telling about how that God spoke in the Old Testament through the prophets, the Old Testament times through the prophets. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then he starts talking about the humanity of Jesus, how much better Jesus is than the angels. He doesn't start with the fathers. He doesn't start with the prophets. He doesn't start with, the, with Abraham or Moses or any of those guys. He starts with the angels because in the Jewish mind, the angels were the top. That was the most powerful being that there was right under God. So he starts with the angels, and in chapter 1, he identifies many different reasons, seven different Old Testament documentations for why Jesus is better than or superior to the angels. So in chapter 2... Now he's going to take the first four verses and he's going to try to, um, before he gets into the, the, the next thing that he's going to prove or assert, he takes a, a little side journey, uh, an application break, if you will. He spends chapter 1 talking about, uh, uh, here's why Jesus is better than the angels. He's got a more excellent name than them. He's by inheritance given more, been given more to than, uh, than they ever were. The angels are going to worship him. He goes through a whole list of seven different Old Testament things that we've talked about before as to the excellency or the superiority of Jesus in his humanity over the angels. Now, the reason I make that, uh, that statement is because if his point was that Jesus was God and therefore better than the angels, what do you need a book for for that? The only question is whether or not Jesus was God. Because if he was God, of course he's better than and greater than and superior to the angels. He's proving that Jesus in his humanity is better than the angels. Because not only was he the creator who laid aside his heavenly power and glory, but he came to the earth and he, through his sacrifice, through his actions and his work here on the earth, obtained a more excellent name than them. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore... And now, the therefore has to have something that it's attached to. You don't start something, you don't start in the middle of a, uh, of a conversation and say, therefore, unless what you said before has a bearing on what you're about to say. So the therefore has to have some kind of relevance, relevance to his, to his uh, subject. The relevance is in chapter 1 and verse 4, where it says, being made so much better than the angels. Being made so much better... Than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Everything else in chapter 1 is proving that he has a more excellent name. 
and therefore superior to or better than the angels. So chapter 2, he starts off and says, therefore. Now notice, because Jesus, since Jesus has a more excellent name and is superior to the angels, notice the next thing that the writer says is we. He identifies with the people that he's writing to. Now, we're going to have to stop and answer a couple of questions here, or at least consider a couple of things. Does that mean the people he's writing to are saved? Is he saying we as a, as a, as a group of saved people? Well, many, the Bible says many of the, uh, of the Jews in Jerusalem did believe. Many of the leaders in Jerusalem believed in Jesus when they saw the miracles and, or believed in Jesus when they saw the disciples doing the same miracles Jesus did and so forth. So certainly we could include those that were saved, but not everybody that's trying to tear up the church and coming from Jerusalem and operating in the Jerusalem church is saved. Paul says so himself in some of the other letters that he wrote. So we can't just be to those of us that are saved, those of us that are born again. No, this is something that identifies the author. He's saying we as I'm a descendant of Abraham just like you are. I'm a descendant of Abraham just like you are. Now, you may remember that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, I'd give up my salvation. Chapter 9, he said, I'd give up my salvation if I could just get Israel saved. Now, I don't know if he literally meant that. That seems a little extreme to me. I mean, I want a lot of other people to get saved, but I'm not willing to go to hell for it. You know? Jesus did that, so thank God we don't have to. So I don't know if he's speaking figuratively or literally there, but either way, it sure shows his heart toward Israel. Now, again, remember, assuming this is Paul, and I believe it was, if, if, uh, as I've said before, if I'm wrong, then when we get to heaven, God will straighten us out on that. But if it was Paul, consider a couple of things. He heard Stephen preach the gospel. We don't know what he heard about the church or about Christianity prior to that, but we know in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen was stoned, Paul was standing there holding the coats of the people that killed him. He heard, Peter, or heard Stephen say, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Folks, that's about as strong a declaration when you're at the point of death. That's about as strong a testimony or a declaration that Jesus is alive that you can get. I mean, if, if, if you're putting it on, that would be the point where you say, okay, stop, stop. I'll give up. I was just, I was just trying to, to, get, to gain position in the church. I, I, I don't really think this stuff. He didn't. He said, there's Jesus. Paul heard these things. So we know Paul heard the gospel preached. We have to assume that Paul heard what, the, Jew, what uh, the disciples were doing in Jerusalem. That's where he received the letters and the authority to go to Damascus and persecute the Christians that were there. So they weren't able to stamp out the church in Jerusalem. Peter and some of the other apostles were still there and they were openly in the temple. Every time they tried to throw them in jail, the angel would come get them out and you know, that kind of stuff. That didn't, after a while, they, I guess they quit doing that. So we know that he had some kind of knowledge about the church because he was persecuting them. So he had at least third-hand information about what was going on. But we know that he heard Stephen preach the gospel. And Stephen preached to the Jews. And Stephen wasn't really nice about some of the last stuff that he said. He presented his argument very, very well. But right there at the end, he said, Now you bunch of stiff-necked buzzards. That's my translation, not King James, but pretty much fits. So Paul's heard the gospel. Now, when Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and for the three days that he's without sight and whatever period of time, many uh, Bible scholars um, believe, and there's no way to prove it one way or the other, but many Bible scholars believe that it was in those three days that Paul was without the ability to see because of the glory of the light that that's when he was caught up into heaven and heard the things that he heard and, and got the revelation that he got. With his rabbinical training, he was trained with the, the same training that the high priests would have, uh, which would include being able to memorize and, and speak uh, without scrolls or anything else the whole of the law and the prophets. I, 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 that just blows my mind to think that somebody could memorize the Old Testament. But that was the rabbinical training. With that kind of knowledge, when Jesus revealed himself to Paul and showed who he was and brought him up into the third heaven, now all of a sudden for Paul, and again, this kind of makes my mind go tilt, but imagine all the things that just fell into place about the stuff that he had learned growing up. Imagine all the things, all the Old Testament scriptures that, that may have been a little, bit, little blind or a little confusing to them about, well, what does this really mean? Now all of a sudden things start falling into place. And he says, wow. Jesus, I know who you are now. That's the attitude he seems to bring into the book of Hebrews. 
He's not trying to rail on anybody, even though they're tearing up the church. He rails on the Galatians for letting these people get into their thinking and their believing, but not to the Jews. When he writes to them, he's writing to them as one of them. So he says, therefore, since Jesus has obtained a more excellent name than the angels and is superior to them, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, in order to understand this, you're going to have to go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Remember, Paul starts off and he says, God, who in sundry times, that means different periods, and in diverse manners, different ways, spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Well, he knows he's writing to Jewish leaders. At least he knows this letter is going to get back to some people that have the same training that he does. So he's going to try to implore them from a standpoint of opening the Old Testament to them. He says God spoke in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets. Summarizes that by saying the fathers. But then he says in the time that we live in, what he calls the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. By his son whom he's appointed heir of all things. Then he goes through and proves how Jesus is heir of all things. So he says, since God spoke in times past through the prophets and the law and the fathers, but now he's speaking to us through his son, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. Now, folks, here's something that you need to understand. It's um, uh, every messianic uh, congregation or group that I've ever known of, about, and when I, when I use that term, um, I assume everybody's heard the term Messianic Jew. Well, Messianic Jew, Jewry is, uh, is considered to be we're of the Old Testament, we're of the descendants of Abraham, we're, we're natural descendants of Abraham, but we believe in Jesus now. In other words, it means they're Jews that got saved. But I have never seen any Messianic Jewish group yet. There may be some out there, I just don't know. But in my experience, I've never seen one yet that doesn't hold on to the Old Testament rituals and, and all the stuff. And they go through their services with flags and the tambourines and all the Old Testament worship type stuff and just try to add Jesus to that. Now, like I said, if there is a group out there that doesn't do that, then I stand corrected. But I've never become aware of them. So in other words, what they're doing is they're trying to hold on to the Old Testament. They're trying to hold on to what God spoke in times past, the way that God spoke in times past, and add Jesus to it. That's not the point Paul's going to make to the Jews. He's going to very simply say that that which was in times past is passed away. But he does not make the argument that I see so many Christians trying to do between Old Testament and New Testament where they try to act like the Old Testament wasn't as inspired as the New Testament is because it was. Paul doesn't attack the origin of the Old Testament. It was divinely inspired. But now we're in a new time. And so the divine inspiration is now through his son. And for that reason, we ought now to hold on to the things which we have heard through his son and not let those things slip. He's telling them, he stops right in the middle of proving that Jesus is better than the angels and says to the Jews, now it's up to you to decide what you're going to do about this. You're going to have to decide. And he groups himself with them. Therefore, we Jews who were followers of the law and the prophets. And nobody was a greater follower than, than Paul. He said, I was the uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was number one in the persecuting of the church because we thought the church was wrong because it, it violated the Old Testament. Now I know that it doesn't violate the Old Testament because the Old Testament is passed away in the manner, not, not in origin. It was just as divinely inspired. It had just as divine an origin as Jesus. But the time is such that God's speaking to us in a different way now. Does that make sense? So he says, therefore, we ought. He speaks of duty. He speaks of responsibility. You know why the Jews followed the law? Because they ought to. Because they had a duty to. He's saying your duty now shifts from the Old Testament to those things that Jesus said. And you're going to have to decide what you're going to do about that. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. What does he mean more earnest heed? He means even more strongly than you were a follower of the law, you should be a follower of Jesus. Less than any time we should let them slip. Now, folks, that presupposes that they know what Jesus said. Or it presupposes that they, if they don't know, that they find out what Jesus said. One of the, the I don't know why it is, but, but early on, 
there were some scriptures, even before I found out about operating in faith and, and the value of your words and stuff. I'm talking about in the Baptist church when I was a kid. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 really stood out to me some way or another. I mean, they've always stuck with me throughout my life. It's when Jesus spoke to those, those Jews who believed on him. And he said, if you continue in my word, then shall you be my disciples indeed. Or then are you my disciples indeed. And then he goes on in verse 32. Most people know what verse 32 says. May not know where it is, but they know what verse 32 says. But they, they divorce it. They separate it from verse 31. Verse 31, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. So Jesus makes a very specific break and distinction between believers and disciples. And he told the church to go make disciples of all people, not believers. So you go to an evangelistic meeting or go to revival, you get converts. In other words, you turn unbelievers into believers. But then that believer has to choose whether or not they're going to continue in the word and become a disciple. In my opinion, most of the American church are believers rather than disciples. And the only thing they really believe in is Jesus died on the cross. That's as far as their believing goes. So he says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And, verse 32, you shall know the truth. Where does knowing the truth come from? By continuing in the word. That's the only place you can find it. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So if you back that up, start from the back and come up to the front... It literally means the only way you can be free is to know the truth. The only way you can know the truth is continuing the word. So continuing the word makes you free. And that's the only way the church or believers are going to become disciples and therefore victorious in life. Which is why you don't have too many victorious Christians. I don't say that with any joy. It's just the way that it is. And, And son of a gun, God wasn't surprised by that. Jesus said it all the time. That's the same kind of principle that Paul's talking about here when he speaks to the Jews. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. Just like you were followers of the Old Testament, just like you're sticklers for the law and the prophet, and that's why you're trying to tear up the other churches that I establish. Because God has spoken to us in these last days by his son, that's what you ought to give the more earnest heed to. And the same thing's true for me, Paul says. Lest at any time we let them slip. This is a, a real, uh, what's, what word do I want to use? It's, a, it's an unused term. Lest we should let them slip. Lest they should slip. That is a one word term. It's one Greek word that's translated lest they should slip. And it literally means lest, lest we should drift away from them. It's kind of like a boat going into harbor and the wind causes them, the, the sailors aren't paying attention to what they do and so the wind causes them to miss the harbor entrance. He's saying we ought to give the more earnest heed to these things so that we don't backslide from them. Folks, I've got to tell you, as a pastor, the thing that grieves my heart more than anything else is not the person that won't accept the truth, not the person that won't receive it. There's a lot of Christians that come in, they hear what we have to say, and they say, well, that's interesting. I've never heard anything like that before. And it goes one ear and out the other. They become the, the, you know, the ground that the devil steals the seed from, and they go their way, and there's nothing, nothing ever comes of it. That doesn't bother me too much. I know that's going to happen. What bothers me is when somebody takes hold, and then for whatever reason, whether they get discouraged, whether the, the persecution comes against them, or whatever it is, then they turn loose. That... Uh, Man, that really gets me. I can't do anything about it. And the Bible says you're going to have those people just like the ones that won't accept to begin with. I just don't understand people turning away. You see, you can make me turn away for anything. I don't understand people leaving where the truth is being taught and where they see the truth manifesting and victory coming to pass and healing is taking place. I don't understand people going to churches where they say that doesn't happen. How do you do that? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying you've got a responsibility now as descendants of Abraham because God gave you the law and the prophets. Now he's given you his son. And you have a greater responsibility to listen to his son than you ever had to listen to the prophets. Well, folks, that was commanded. They didn't have an option. That was commanded. And that's the basis that Paul begins to speak. Verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels... Now he's going to tell the law and the prophets... 
came, the law of Moses came by the angel. Well, that's, that's exactly what the Old Testament says. Moses says so. He said the angel gave it to him. Now, whether he's speaking of the angel being God, we don't know. It's not the word for God. But as far as the Jews were concerned, the angels had a hand in it. Any divine delivery, the angels had a hand in. And so Paul uses that. He says, for if the word spoken by the angels, meaning the Old Testament law, was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, there's a consequence for not doing it. Not, and, uh, transgression and disobedience, those are two words that are really hard to separate. Why did he use both? Why did Paul use both of these words? One, if there is a difference and a distinction, the best thing, the best definition or explanation you're ever going to find is that one may mean the outward act and the other means the attitude or the motive of the heart. Because besides that, there is really no difference between those two words. So he says, if the Old Testament law which was given by the angels was steadfast, in other words, it didn't change, it couldn't be moved, it was the law of God, the word of God, and every transgression and disobedience, act and motive, received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, folks, I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying the Old Testament was the law. The Old Testament was pointing to a different time. Now we're in that different time, and we have now a great salvation, so great salvation. Is there anything in the Old Testament that ever brought salvation to anybody? No. And when Jesus claimed to be righteous, the Jews tried to kill him. You know why? Because nobody could be righteous. Well, wait a minute. If nobody could be righteous, what was the law and the prophets about? What was keeping the law all about? What was the purpose of it? Well, Paul says the purpose of the law and the prophets was to show man that he couldn't do it on his own. That's it. The law was for one and only one purpose, and that was to show man you're not okay by yourself. So when Jesus said that he was righteous or sanctified by the Father, man, the Jews wanted to kill him. Salvation was not in any way on any level available through the Old Testament sacrifice through the keeping of the law. Nobody thought they'd be saved by the law. They just thought they'd be in God's good graces some way or another. But never was salvation part of the package. Now Paul hits them right out of the gate. He says, if it was steadfast under the old covenant, but there was a recompense or there was a, a punishment, a consequence for wrong actions and wrong motives, how can we escape punishment if we neglect the salvation that came through the Son who God speaks through in these last days? What is he saying? He's saying that which Jesus speaks is the gospel, the good news. Why? Because the gospel is what brings salvation. Not the law, not the prophets. Paul tells them right up front, here's the difference between what you're holding on to and what you should be holding on to. What you're holding on to, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, brought rituals, it brought sacrifice, it brought knowledge that the Redeemer was to come. What Jesus brought to us was the good news that you can be saved now. Folks, I would submit to you that that's a 180 degree shift for the Jewish mindset. This is the shift that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. When Jesus appears or speaks to Paul, the light shines round about Paul and his company from heaven and Paul's knocked down off the animal that he's riding and, he, and uh, Jesus speaks out of heaven and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul's first, ask, first question is, who art thou, Lord? In other words, I don't know who you are. He's kind of like Moses standing before the burning bush. God speaks to him and says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and, and he says, who are you? I mean, a burning bush is a big sign. But who are you? Pharaoh, the burning bush said, let my people go. That's not going to work. So he says, who are you? And God identifies himself. I am that I am. Paul's first question, who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but it's obvious that you are Lord. Now, he's a Jewish high priest trained Jew. I know that doesn't work, but nevertheless, you get my point. 
He's got all the training that you can possibly have in the Old Testament. He knows the law and the prophets as well as any human being could possibly know it. He says that he had the best training at the feet of Gamaliel. He says that he was better and more excellent and greater scholar than anybody else that he knew. Unless he's just bragging and, and blowing smoke, I guess we have to accept what he says. Nobody knew the Old Testament better than him. So when he says, Lord, he knows this is God operating in some way or another. Well, then why didn't he know it? Why does, he, why does he not say, oh, hi, I am that I am? No, when he says, Lord, he's confessing. He's saying, whatever I thought, whatever I was operating on, this is not a friendly thing. If this had been a friendly thing, you wouldn't have fallen off of his animal. He realizes this is make or break time. When Jesus speaks and said, why persecutest thou me? This is not well done, good and faithful servant. Paul knows immediately this is not a good thing. Now, he has no idea what's going to happen and how good it's going to be. But he knows at that moment, uh uh-oh. So he says, who art thou, Lord? When Jesus answers and says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Everything about Paul's life shifts. Because he's already identified whoever you are, you're Lord. It's like Moses standing before the burning bush and saying, well, okay, I've never seen a bush burn and talk. So this has got to be God, but I just don't know your name. That's what Paul's doing on the road to Damascus. He says, okay, I know you're God, but who are you? Because in his thinking, he's not persecuting God. So when Jesus answers and says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Everything about Paul's life shifts. Everything that he thought and he was holding on to and that he'd studied and that he'd pursued and, and that he was climbing the ladder to get to, everything about the Old Testament, everything about the law and the prophets, everything that he had dedicated his life to went straight out the window instantly. Because if you're Jesus, that means you're really alive, you're really doing this stuff, that means I've been wrong about everything. The reason he was persecuting the church is because his position, his attitude was the same as the guys he's now writing to many years later. Forget this Jesus stuff. We've got Moses. We've got Abraham. We know that this was divinely inspired and given to us of God supernaturally. The law was given to us supernaturally. We're not turning loose of that for anything. In so doing, they're neglecting so great salvation. So when Paul hits them with the salvation term, he's giving them their own road to Damascus experience. You're going to have to decide. Can't be both ways. So he says, how can we escape? How then can we escape if the Old Testament had recompense and punishment for not obeying? How can we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Now that's going to tell us something about who wrote this. Can't be Peter. Because whoever the author is says that he heard the gospel not from Jesus, but from somebody that heard it from Jesus. He's third generation. Can't be Peter. Can't be any other disciples or the apostles. So he says, how can we neglect? The word neglect means think so lightly of. Uh, This is a great word for him to use. How can we think so lightly of something that Jesus did? That's one of the things that gets me. How in the world can people say healing is not an important issue? Jesus was beaten for it. He shed blood for it. He shed the same blood that he shed on the cross for his sins. How can people say that's not important? How can people say that the chastisement of our peace, financial well-being, uh, well-being in every area of life, how can people say, well, that's just a side issue? I'm sure that's what Jesus thought. When he was being beaten for these things, he just thought, well, okay, this is just a side issue. That's why this one doesn't hurt as bad. Seriously. How can people take that position? I understand people not knowing. I understand people not ever having been taught. But once you see it, how can you just blow it off and say, oh, well, that's not a big deal? Jesus thought so. How can you think so lightly or think so little of what Jesus did? I don't understand how people can think so little of what Jesus paid for, for them to be saved, for them to be delivered from death where their commitment to him is concerned. How do you just blow God off to go do your own thing in the world and have it your own way? 
how do you think so little of what Jesus did? Now, folks, I understand there are a lot of people in the church that don't know, but you don't fall into that category. You know. I blew a lot of things off and thought little of them because nobody would tell me. And all the time I was thinking, there's got to be something more than this. So I'd ask questions and say, oh, you're not supposed to ask things like that. Okay. But now that I know, how do you take it lightly? Folks, that's the continuing in the word that makes you disciples and brings the truth to make you free. That's what Jesus intended all along. Jesus did not intend for people to get saved and then just go enjoy their life and and see how things worked out. Jesus intended for every person that accepted his sacrifice to continue in the word so that they could be committed to whatever his plan was for their life. He didn't give all of himself so he could get a little part of you. He gave all of him to get all of you. That's the point he's making. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first, in other words, the gospel, at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, by Jesus himself, while he was here on the earth, and then after he was raised from the dead, and confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Well, that's what the disciples did, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? He said, Father, I pray not just for these that uh, that you've given me, but for all those that shall believe because of their word. Folks, that's everybody. Everything we've got is because of the original apostles that began to spread the word. The letters that Paul wrote are because of the original, go- the original apostles that preached the gospel that caused the, the truth to spread and Christianity to spread. That's where it all came from. Then it says in verse 4, here's a ver- another important thing where the Jews are concerned because remember, the Jews can't accept... The, the Jews of the Old Testament, we'll say it that way. The Jews of the Old Testament cannot accept that somebody is working by God in them. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, they wanted to take up stones to kill him. Why? Because he's saying God is inside me. You can't have God inside you in the Old Covenant. It's impossible. Nobody could do that. Well, no man could do that. They're right. No human being that was subject to sin and death could do that, but Jesus was born of a virgin. He was a sinless man, so he could have God on the inside of them. They wouldn't accept that to be true. They didn't ask questions. They didn't say, wait a minute, Jesus, this doesn't sound right. How is this possible? No, they just wanted to kill him because they, he said something that cut crossways with their thinking and their religious doctrine. Therefore, in order for somebody to have the Holy Ghost or the Father in them, those are synonymous terms, in the same way that Jesus had would mean that something has changed for the person as opposed to the way that it used to be under the Old Covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? So chapter 4, or verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul says, the gospel, verse 3, the gospel was first preached by Jesus, then it was confirmed by those that heard him preach it and shared it with us. And then verse 4, God also bearing, notice King James says them, the word them is in italics. God didn't bear them witness, God bore witness. God also bearing witness. Four things, with signs, wonders, diverse miracles, if you're reading along with the King James, you'll see it says, and gifts of the Holy Ghost. The word gifts is literally the word distributions. Four things. What four things caused us to know that Jesus was sent from God? Signs, wonders, divers, miracles, and distributions of the Holy Ghost. What caused the people to realize that the disciples or the apostles were doing the same work as Jesus? Signs, wonders, Miracles and distributions of the Holy Ghost. Then he goes and says that God gives those according to his own will. In other words, he's saying anybody that's heard the Son and accepted this so great salvation can have the same Holy Ghost and the same power, the same miracle results, the same things that Jesus did. That's impossible for the Jews to accept unless they turn away from the old covenant and step over into what Jesus says. Now remember, Paul has two different things in mind in this. There's two purposes. Because he knows that the Jews are a big mishmash of a bunch of different stuff. He knows that some of the Jews are saved 
but they're still holding on. They're the Messianic Jewish type thing. They're still holding the Old Testament. They're still trying to do everything according to the rituals and the, and the, uh, the sacrifices. The temple is still in operation. He talks about going to the temple in chapter 7 and paying tithes, so it's got to still be there, which means it's before, this is written before 70 A.D. So he knows that there are some Jews that are just mixing Jesus with the Old Covenant. And he knows that there are some of the Jews that are in the church trying to control and direct the church at Jerusalem that never even got saved. They're just trying to steer things. And folks, remember, that's what the Pharisees did with Jesus. First offer that the Pharisees made to Jesus is come be one of us. And Jesus said, no, I won't do that because I refuse to commit myself to any man. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to let anybody or any group direct me, steer me, tell me what I should or shouldn't do. I'm going to follow God. That's the same thing that the Jews, many of the Pharisees, are trying to do in the Jerusalem church. They're direct, and they're doing a bang-up job. That's why the church in Jerusalem is such a mess for so long. That's why the church has to spread out to the Gentile world where there can be freedom of the Holy Ghost. Then the church in Jerusalem hears about these things and, and gets jealous. They say, well, I don't understand. We used to have miracles like that when we were young. First couple of chapters of the book of Acts, man, we'd have miracles all over the place. Now we're not having anything. Ten or 15 years later, we're not having any miracles. Well, I wonder why. Because now they're letting the religious Jews and the religion of the Jews steer them and and steal from them the very things that God bore witness through them, signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Spirit. That's what Paul's addressing. So he's he's creating a a, a dimensional shift here, if you will. I don't know if that word really applies, that phrase applies. But it's going to be the same change that takes place uh, for them that took place with Paul on the road to Damascus. And think about this too. They've got some of the same training he does. So if they ever get it, it's going to open up to them just like it opened up to him. At least that's what Paul's hoping for. Whether it ever happens or not is not up to him. It's up to them. But that's what he's shooting for. Now the end of chapter uh, 2 and verse 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul ends his little side journey talking about responsibility and duty and, and, uh, and punishment. And, and folks, please understand, he uses something that the Jews can very well understand. Old Testament was all about do this or else. What does he say? He says, if you neglect, think so little of this so great salvation, there's going to be an even greater punishment. Under the old covenant, keep the law and you get into Abraham's bosom. Under the new covenant, you miss Jesus, you miss everything. Hell is the only place there is. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a greater punishment. He's talking about a a sorer judgment for neglecting Jesus than there even was to neglect the old covenant. Verse 5. Notice he says for. Anytime the the, uh, phrase or a verse starts with for, it has to refer to something else. Now, what is it referring to? Well, verses 1 through 4 was his little side journey Now that we've proven Jesus is greater than the angels, here's what you have to do. He includes himself in the group. Here's what we Jews have to consider. Verse 5, the for, the word for, F-O-R in verse 5, refers back to what Paul finished saying in chapter 1 in verse 14, where he was proving that Jesus was greater than the angels. None of the angels did he ever say, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In verse 13, I think it is. Verse 14, he says, are they not all ministering spirits? He concludes that the angels are not greater than Jesus. They're lower than Jesus. Because they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Not minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation. Minister for them. In other words, the heirs of salvation that he's talking about which we might as well just accept that those are the ones that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, believers, disciples. It's our job to send them forth to minister. Not to sit back and say, okay, angels, bring me this, bring me this, bring me this. No, it's our job to send the angels out. We're not looking for God to get the angels working. We're looking to give them direction so that they can carry out our will because God directed them to be our servants that's a new concept for the jews angels couldn't be men's servants because they were the ones that delivered the things from god to them so chapter 2 verse 5 4 
because they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. For unto the angels has he not put unto in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Paul's going to change the subject here a little bit. Now he's going to talk about the angels in relation to a new time period. Notice he calls it the world to come. Now what is the world to come? Well, there are four worlds that are talked about in the Bible. And when I talk about worlds, I'm talking about ages. I'm not talking about planets. I'm talking about ages. There are two different words that are used for world, primarily used for world in the Old Testament. One means age. One means uh, the earth, the physical territory. And another word, a third word that's very rarely used, means inhabited world. Now, that's what this word is. It's the word inhabited world. So the four worlds that are spoken of, the four different ages in the, in the Scripture that are spoken about are the pre-Adamic age, that which happened, whatever it was that happened before Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, the earth that we know of, the age that we know of, from Adam all the way through the end of the church age. The third age is the millennial reign of Jesus. And then the fourth age is the new heaven and the new earth. Those are the only four ages or the four worlds, literally, that the Bible tells us about. Pre-Adam, Adam to the rapture, the millennial reign where Jesus comes down and rules physically here on the earth for a thousand years. And then after that, when the new heaven and the earth, new earth is, is created. So which one's he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about times past. He can't be talking about the pre-Adamic age. Well, what is he talking about? Is he, some, some speculate, some commentators speculate that he's talking about the world to come, meaning after Jesus' resurrection. But if that were the case, why would Paul say by the Holy Ghost the world to come rather than the world that now is? So that can't be right. Well, that only leaves us two different worlds that he could be talking about. It's either the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus here on the earth, or the new heaven and the new earth. Now, do we have any information about what the angels will do in either of those two time periods? Yes, we do. We have information about one of those two time periods. We don't have any information about what the angels are going to do when the new heaven and the new earth are made. We don't know. No clue. So when Paul says, the world to come which we speak, now he's going to say, what he's literally saying is, I'm going to talk about that world to come, the millennial age. And this is where he says the ministering spirits are sent forth to minister for them that will be heirs of salvation for unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come. In other words, he's saying the angels are not going to rule in the millennium. They're ministering spirits. Who are they going to minister for? Those who shall be heirs of salvation. So please notice the subject has changed now from the angels proper to man's relation to the angels. Can you see that? The angels are not, the world to come, the millennial age is not going to be subject to the angels. Now, we see the angels doing a whole lot of stuff during the rapture, don't we? I'm sorry, not during the rapture, during the uh, tribulation. Man, all the, the stuff that they poured out, the vials and the, the, uh, the bowls and all this kind of stuff, all oh, that's angels. That's the work of angels. Man, they, I mean, they've got free reign because the church isn't here. They're ministering for one and only one person, and that's God. They're carrying out the will of God during that seven-year period. But after that, Jesus said that we would sit on his right hand and judge the angels. That's during the millennium. Not during the new heaven and new earth age, whatever that is, or the ages to come, but during the millennium. So he says, for unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, the millennial age, whereof we speak. What we're going to talk about now. But one in a certain place testified, saying... Now he's going to quote from or uh, refer to Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, I believe it is. Now Psalm 8 is a psalm of David. Now he's writing to Jews. He's writing to people that know the Old Testament. He knows that this is going to get back to the, to the Jewish leaders. So there's two schools of thought in this. Some say that what he's talking about, the one that testified saying he's talking about is David. Well, if that was the case, why wouldn't he say David? I mean, he's talking to Jews. It seems like if he's going to use David as a, as a character reference or, you know, as a proof in some way or another, it seems like it would gain greater credibility for him. He'd say, now, remember, David said this. Doesn't it? I mean, why would he omit saying David? 
But if, on the other hand, since he's been talking about angels, and now he's talking about man's relationship to angels, if the one who testified saying is the angel instead of David, then that would fit, wouldn't it? So notice what he said. He did not say one wrote. He said one testified. The word testified is really interesting because it's most commonly translated witnessed in some form or another. He's saying one person, one somebody witnessed saying these things that David wrote down for us in Psalm 8. Did David witness those things? Did David witness the stuff that he's talking about? Well, no, he might have considered it. He might have thought about it. Let's read the quotes, and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more maybe. One to, in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under, in subjection under his feet. Now, at that point, he stops quoting from Psalm 8. So notice what he says. Here's this one that's testifying, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? That could have been David. If you want to turn your Bibles to, to Psalm 8 and, and look with me and see that it's a, a, a legitimate quote or a, an accurate, exact quote is the word I'm looking for, might be helpful. Because David's talking about the, uh, writes a psalm about the glory of God. He starts off in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. That thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Folks please notice that the Bible says that praising God is what stops the devil. I wish Christians had figured that out. It is not whining. Crying about your situation. Going to a support group. Those may be fine things to do. You may enjoy the feeling you get from them, but none of those things stops the devil. There's only one thing the Bible says stops the devil, and that is praising God, because that's man using his authority. And that's what he says. He stills the enemy and the avenger. Then he goes in verse 3, and he says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Folks, I want you to understand something. David is saying by the Holy Ghost however we want to consider this David is saying that God created the heavens with his fingers in other words he flicked the constellations out into the heavens of all the intricate stuff and of all the things that science and astronomers and all these guys are finding out about how the, the galaxies interact and, and different things like that God created them like that now I don't know about you but my fingers are probably one of the weakest parts of my body in other words, the implication is it didn't take God any power at all to make the universe. I mean, stuff we marvel at. I mean, constellations. The gospel is written in the sky. The Bible says so. God didn't have to put a star here and a star there. And I've well, got to move this one over a little bit. No, he flicks them out there with his fingers. That's how big God is. So then he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, or the work of your fingers, rather, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man, literally offspring of man, that thou hast visited him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, thou madest him to have dominion over all the works of thy hands. Now he's talking about where man has dominion. Where does man have dominion? On earth. Now he says he made the earth with his hands. The universe with his fingers, but the earth with his hands. Thou madest him to have dominion over all the works of thy hands, for thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, folks, notice verse 5, the word angels. If you're looking with me in, in uh, Psalm 8. The word angels, this translated angels in the, Hebrew, in the English from the original Hebrew, is the word Elohim. Now, there are... There's another word that's most often used for angels. And if you look up in a concordance, you'll find out that the word angels is in the Old Testament a hundred and something times, almost 200 times. And every time the word angel is used, it's talking about a messenger. 
But if you look at this word, Elohim, the Hebrew word Elohim, you'll find out that there are a few times, very few times, that it's translated angel, but over 2,400 times it's translated God. So keep something in mind. It's saying that whoever is speaking these things witnessed them. Did David witness these things? Did David witness man being made a little lower than God? Did David witness him creating the universe? Was David standing off to the edge, waiting to be born some thousands of years later, maybe millions of years later, saying, wow, this is cool, God. I'm so glad you showed me creation. He can't be the one that witnessed or testified saying. He's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. What Paul tells us, by the Spirit of God was an angel who witnessed creation. Back to Hebrews 2. Now that fits because the one, if he's left without a title or a name, the one would have to be in reference to whatever the rest of the subject was that he's been talking about. Who's he been talking about? Well, he hadn't been talking about the prophets. He hadn't been talking about the fathers. David would qualify for either one of those categories. Who has he been talking about? He's been talking about the angels. He's been talking about how much better Jesus is than the angels. So when he says for one, remember he didn't write in chapter and verse. So when he says for one testified saying, he's saying one of these angels we're talking about declared and witnessed what we have David recording for us. Maybe millions of years later, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, a little lower than God himself. Now, folks, what does that tell us? That tells us that the angels understood what God's original plan was. When God says in Genesis 126, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands, the angels are standing back saying, huh? Let's crown him with glory and honor. Let's, put, let's give him dominion over all the works of our hands. Please remember that other scriptures tell us that's the place that Satan held. Folks, when it comes to God's enemies, he is the perfect revenger. You know how the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? Nobody's better at it than him. When it came to thumbing his nose, spitting in the eye of his enemy, Lucifer, after Lucifer rebelled with a third of the angels and he was cast out of heaven, cast back into the earth, destroys the earth, Makes it a wasteland. Genesis 1 tells us the story about how God recreates it. He recreates the heavens and the earth. The angels witness that. He recreates the universe by throwing his stars out with his fingers. Then he makes the earth with his hands. Then he says, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over all the works of our hands. When he does that, Satan is standing off to the side saying, there's no way you're going to create something new and give him my place. But that was God's plan for man. What happens? He gets in, gums it up. Man falls. But man was always intended to have the dominion over the works of God's hands. Not the universe, but over the works of God's hands. Over the earth. Man was intended to have dominion over the earth. How could he do that? Well, we know the angels changed their status. When they were operating under Lucifer, they had the free will to to rebel with him. And a third of them did. But after Lucifer was cast out, Satan was cast out of heaven, the Bible says the angels were sealed. In other words, they had a certain period of time to make their choice, the devil or God, kind of like man does here on the earth. God hadn't changed. Same program, different time periods. After somebody dies, it's too late. That's why we need to teach Jesus, preach Jesus while they're here. Once the angels were sealed... They were no longer in a position to have any dominion over the works of God's hands. He's got to be talking about mankind. Got to be, right? And the angels say, you're making them a little lower than yourself. They didn't say, and and the Holy Ghost could have used, very easily could have used the the word that literally means angels or messengers. The angels could have said, well, you're making them a little lower than us. But they're not. You know why they're not? You know why man was not created below the angels? Because the angels have no free will and choice now. You know the greatest power that man has? Free will and choice. That free will and choice determines his eternity. 
It determines what he has here on the earth. It determines everything about this so great salvation that Jesus has purchased for us and whether or not we ever really accept it and walk in it. Why do some Christians accept healing and others do not? Free will and choice. Why do some Christians accept the blessing of God, financial uh, and provision and so forth, and others do not? Free will and choice. Everything is determined by man's will. Not by what God does. Jesus died for the sins of the world. In God's eyes, everybody, the price for everybody's salvation has already been paid. Why isn't everybody saved then? Free will and choice. In that sense, you're a little lower than God because he can freely choose to do whatever he wants. He's good not because he has to be, but because he chooses to be. The angels can't choose anymore. So you've been made a little lower than God. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's where he stops quoting from Psalm 8. Now Paul is going to make some comments. Notice what he says. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, he's saying when God made man the ruler of the world, that means there's nothing under mankind or there's nothing that God did not put under mankind. In all of the works of his hands. But then he makes an observation. He said, but we don't see it working out like that yet, do we? That's the way God intended. But we don't see it working out that way. Well, what do we see? Verse 9. But we see Jesus. Now, these two words see in verses 8 and then beginning in verse 9, they're different words. He says, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, there's nothing... He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, he's saying, but it's it's clearly obvious that not everything in this earth is underneath man's feet. That's obvious, right? I love how Paul doesn't pull any punches. Paul says, well, this is the way that God made it, but it's not that way yet, is it? Why? Because he's talking about the world to come. He's talking about the millennial age. Now, what does that mean to us? Does that mean that we don't have authority over Satan? No, we certainly do. But there are some things that are going to go on in the world that you can't take authority over. There are some things. The devil has free reign and choice here on the earth. Um, He he can choose to attack anybody and everybody that he wants to. And you can take your authority in the name of Jesus all you want to, and you'll never, ever, ever stop the devil from ever attacking you again. I've had people come up and pray, and I heard Brother Hagin say this, and I was surprised to hear other people do it uh, with me too. Brother Hagin said somebody came up to him one time and said, Brother Hagin, I want you to pray for me. Oh, my goodness. I need you to pray that I've quit having any trouble with the devil. Brother Hagin asked him a question. He said, Would you like me to pray for you to die? <laughs> well, no. No, I don't want that at all. He said, That's the only way you're not going to have any trouble with the devil here on the earth. Why? Because you don't have the authority to stop the devil from attacking humankind. You included. Now, when he does attack you, you can take your authority in the name of Jesus and stop the effects of that attack from taking hold of you. You can't stop him from bringing sickness to you. You can stop that sickness from taking hold of you, though. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, but we don't yet see all things under subjection or under his feet, do we? In subjection to mankind, do we? Well, what do we see? That word see in verse 8 is to see with the physical eye. In other words, we see something in a physical sense. Well, if we don't see everything yet under uh, man's feet in subjection to man and under his feet, what do we see? Verse 9, but we see Jesus. This word is different because it doesn't mean to see with the physical eye. It means to perceive with the spirit. In other words, he's saying, but we see Jesus with the eye of faith, who's been made heir of all things and given a more excellent name than the angels themselves. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, this is not an Old Testament reference. This is Paul saying that Jesus is in the same position that God intended for man. He's talking about the humanity of Jesus. There is no Old Testament corresponding verse that we can go back and say, well, the New Testament says angels, but the Old Testament says Elohim. There's no way that you can do that. This is not an Old Testament reference. Well, then what is Paul talking about? He would have to be talking about Jesus being in the same condition as Psalm 8 speaks of man, wouldn't he? Otherwise, that would be incongruent. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, well, man was made a little lower than God, but Jesus, he was made a little lower than angels. Really? 
Of course not. He's saying Jesus was made in the same position as man because he was human. We see Jesus who for who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, you know what's interesting about this? In, in both places, both uh, in verse um, 7, where it says a little lower than the angels, and verse 9, a little lower than the angels, the word little is really, really, um, well, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways you could take the word little. Some translations translate this a little while. And, and really, if you look at it, it has more to do with period than it has to do with, with place or amount. We think of a little lower than the angels as being, you know, we're, we're lesser than the angels or we're, we're lesser in power or we're lesser in majesty, we're lesser in whatever. Literally, it means for a little while. And here for a little while, because of the fall, we are a little lower than the angels. I don't know if you know this or not, but the angels are a lot faster than you are. You get in trouble and cry out and scream Jesus in the middle of your trouble. The angels have gone from you to heaven and back to you before you ever got the word finished. Angels are not bound by the speed of light. The Bible indicates to us that in heaven things are travel at the speed of thought. Angels are stronger than you are. So in that sense... In a creation sense, we are a little less or a little lower than the angels. But positionally, we're just a little lower than the angels for a little while. And remember, he's still talking about the world to come. He's still talking about the millennium. He's not talking about our authority. He's talking about the millennium. He's saying for a little while, we're a little lower than the angels because they're still here to minister for those that will be heirs of, of salvation. But when the millennium comes along, we will be elevated to be seated at the right hand of Christ to rule and reign over this earth. How is Jesus going to rule over the whole earth with a rod of iron? Well, you're going to take a part of the earth over there. You're going to take a part of the earth over there. And you're going to take a part of the earth over there. The fact that, you rule, that Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron indicates that not everybody that's here on the earth is going to be happy about that. You know what that means? That means the news media will still be here. It means there are people that are just chomping at the bit to be wicked. Politicians will still be in place. I'm making a joke about that, but there, are, there will be, be wicked people here on the earth. There will be whole nations that are forced to be ruled under Jesus and at peace, and they don't want to be. Well, okay, if you've got a territory over there and you've got a territory over there, how are you going to keep order there? How are you going to keep this? How are you going to... Jesus doesn't do it all himself. He says you'll rule and reign with him. How? How are you going to handle that? You'll have angels working for you. That's the little while that he's talking about. The little while is until the world to come. Now remember, he's not talking about anything regarding our authority. He's talking about our relation to angels concerning the world to come. Okay? You with me? All right, we're out of time. We'll have to finish this real quick. Let me finish reading verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, a little while lower than the angels now why was jesus made lower than the angels or lower than god himself for a little while his while his little while was not until the millennium his little while was for the suffering of death he was a little while made lower than the than elohim than the trinity for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor jesus is an example he's a picture of god's original plan for man we don't see everything in subjection to man's feet now in this present age. We will in the millennium, but not in, not in this present age. So what do we see? We see with the eye of faith, based on what Paul reveals to us by the Holy Ghost primarily, we see with the eye of faith, Jesus, who was for a little while made a little lower than the Trinity, even though he was part of the Trinity, he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, came to the earth for the little while so he could suffer death for every man. But just like man, he was crowned with glory and honor that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for every man. We'll quit there. Folks, do you realize... I, there are two things I want you to know. You have so great salvation... 
that as good as you might look at the... How many of you have the, the devil tell you, well, that stuff in the Old Testament, that was just for the Jews. You can't have that now. That was just for the Jews. God was good to Abraham. He made him rich in silver and cattle and gold. And they had all that stuff. And David, my goodness, he had more stuff. He gave over a trillion dollars to the building of the temple in modern-day dollars. Solomon, he was so wealthy, they didn't even count silver. They just piled it up in the back. We see things like that and we think, wow, that's pretty cool. Hey, God, that's, that's kind of nice. And right there, the devil sit on your shoulder and said, oh, that's not for today. That was just for the Jews. That's true. It was just for the Jews because they didn't have so great salvation. They just had material things. That's all they could have. Your so great salvation includes material things as well as all the blessings that we have through the sacrifice of Jesus. The second thing I want you to realize is that so great salvation provides a future for you that is unimaginable. The Bible says that in the ages to come, God will show you the, the kindness of his goodwill. You know what that means? That means it's going to take age after age after age after age for you to figure out just how good God is. How long is that? I don't know. Maybe eternity. It may take us eternity to realize. Think about this. We get to heaven and we'll see things as we are seen. We'll know things as we are known. But that doesn't mean you'll know everything. That doesn't mean there's no discovery. That doesn't mean that, that 25 ages from now or from the time that we get to heaven, we won't have our eyes open to something else about God and just how big and how great he is. Personally, I think it'll take eternity for us to figure out how good God is. I think that's what the Bible's telling us. When you think about it in those terms, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? So many commentators and so many people will preach that from the standpoint of David is looking at the stars. He's looking at the universe. He's sitting out in the, in the fields. And he's saying, wow, look how big everything is. And God, what would make you care about something puny and small like me? No. It's the Psalm 8 is not intended to make you think you're small. Psalm 8 is to make you think that the God that created something so big and so vast as the universe, which nobody knows how big it is, was mindful of man. In other words, the God that's so big to make all this stuff cares about you. And you're what he really cares about. We look at things like that and we wonder... Well, am I just going to make it through the month? I'm just not sure I've got enough. Seriously. If God would do all these things. You know what man's going to find out? If, if space exploration continues and, and expands and all this kind of stuff, if they search the universe, you know what they'd find out? They'd find out man is alone. They'd find out that everything was just window dressing for earth. But he's not alone because the creator made it for him. That's how much he cares about us. We better pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for showing us what belongs to us, Lord. Thank you for this so great salvation that you've given unto us. Open our eyes to all that it means, Lord. Get our eyes focused away from ourselves and our puny situations and what we want and what we think we've got to have and show us things from your perspective, Father. We love you, Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did for us, that you tasted death for every man, that we might have the life of God within us and the power of the Spirit upon us. Thank you, Father, for your great plan Thank you for using us in these last days to help people see and come to the knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.